My name's Andrew. I am the children's and youth pastor. My technical title is the executive pastor. I oversee our kids and our teens uh, and pretty much anything else that Pastor Mike asks me to do as well. I love, I love what I do. Yeah, <laughs> amen. Um, <clears throat> who lost power last night or this morning? Yeah, we did too. Uh, so I was typing on Facebook. A couple people texted me and asked if the church had power. So I was typing on Facebook on our page just to let people know the church has power. And as I typed that, I was like, huh. Yeah, that's good. That's true. The church has power. Um, so yeah, are you guys ready to encounter some power tonight? Whenever we talk about the words of Jesus and the person of Jesus, power goes out because Jesus is power and Jesus is full of power, the power to change lives, just like Pastor Mike already talked about. By the way, Pastor Mike, wherever you're at, I'm pretty sure you looked through the notes of my message and just condensed all of that up here, but that's good because that will preface to where we're going. Uh, usually I'm the one preaching about freedom, but you took care of that for me this morning, so that was good. Okay, um, does anyone else really enjoy sociology? Anyone in the room? Like the, the research experiments where you get to like see what makes people tick and what they do. It's, you're kind of twisted if you enjoy sociology just a little bit because it's the experiments where like there's a whole group of people coming into the office and they're all in the experiment but really only one of them is in the experiment and everyone else is part of it and they'll put up a number of lines on the wall and ask you which line is longer A, B, C, or D and C is like this big and all the others are like this big but the whole group stands up to say C is bigger and they're waiting to see how long it takes the single person who's not part of the experiment to like what am I missing? And start standing up with everyone else. I love those kinds of experiments. I think they're hilarious. Um, and I'm convinced that I, I'd be the person who's the outlier who would just stay sitting and believe that what I perceive is correct. But I don't know if that's true or not. I'd have to be in one of those experiments to find out. But there's all kinds of things that people spend time research, researching and studying about. Uh, one of the things that people have spent time researching is what kinds of sounds are the most pleasing to human ears. So. Um, We'll make this interactive. What do you think might be some of the sounds that, that research has discovered are most pleasing to human ears? What do you guys think? Your, your wife, is that what you said? You're right, honey. Okay, yes. Babies, the human voice is definitely one of those. One of those. Water, okay. Nature sounds are one of those things. What else? Elvis, the music. Okay, I'm sure that that's true. The human voice is included in there. Uh, what was that? Laughter, absolutely, any of those human interactions. Uh, so here's a funny one, white noise. Don't know why that's exactly pleasing to the human ear, but white noise is as well. And this one's really bizarre to me, food sounds. So like the sound of a person like eating or just food, the noise that food makes is really pleasing to the human ear. So here's the question though. What do you think is the most pleasing sound to a person's ear? What, a couple of you raise your hand, I'll call on you. What do you think would be like the most pleasing sound? Quietness before God. I'm not gonna call on you. I feel like you're gonna know what I'm gonna say. That's my wife, Allie, back there. <laughs> Sandy. A little child saying I love you. Well, it's kind of a trick question because I don't know that research-wise they can actually prove like this is the most pleasing sound. But what I have always heard as the answer to that is the most pleasing sound to a person's ear is 
the sound of their own name. Um, there's a famous man by the name of Dale Carnegie. He was a, a lecturer and an author. He was born in the 1920s, and he talked and wrote a lot about interpersonal skills, and he has this quote, a person's name is to him or her the sweetest and most important sound in any language. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, um, but they have done some research on this to help support that it's, it's accurate on some level. Um, they've done studies on brain activations. We all have different parts to our brain, and there's this part kind of in the middle front that regulates the development of your concept of yourself and who you are. And when they play different names, that, that part of your brain is just steady. But when a person hears their own name, it lights up and it starts activating. A person hearing their own name activates their brain. Here's the most fascinating part of that. Have you heard of persistent vegetative state? It's when a person is in a state where they are not conscious, conscious of themselves or of the environment around them. Guess what causes their brain to activate even if they're in PVS? The sound of their own name. That part of their brain will activate even if they're not conscious of the environment around them uh, or of themselves. Here's a totally different fact. In the, at the turn of the 20th century in both the US and the United Kingdom, there was this phenomena that they started, phenomenon that they started noticing. Uh, in nurseries and orphanages and places like that, um, they, they had reached almost 100% mortality rate in some of those places. And they had been looking into this because it was a problem. And they noted that these babies, they weren't starving. They were getting fed. It wasn't poor health or poor nutrition. What was going on? Well, more recently, in some places, those rates have been at 30% or 40% at different times. So researchers have looked into this. And one of the conclusions that they've come to is that babies who do not receive physical touch will often slow or stop growing will become more sick and are more likely to die. Um, I don't know that they can necessarily prove like that was the reason for those mortality rates, but they have done this research. Premature babies who are massaged for 15 minutes, three times a day, gained weight 47% more quickly and continued to grow at a better rate later in life. So babies who are touched grow better, they, they activate, they're healthy, they're whole. So what do the importance of hearing one's name and being touched have in common? They represent what I believe is one of the most basic human needs, the need to be seen. I'm not talking about simply being viewed, someone just like physically seeing your body, but being seen for who you are and what's inside of you. There's a woman in the Bible, her name was Hagar. Has anyone heard of her? She was part of the household of Abram and Sarai. She wasn't part of the family. She was uh, like the, the maidservant to Sarai, Abram's wife. She would help her with things and do whatever she needed. I imagine um, as a servant slave, um, she didn't have her family around. Probably she was lonely in some ways. Probably not a whole lot of sense of, of self and value maybe in that place. Um, but something happened. So Sarai wasn't able to bear children, but they wanted a child. And so Sarai had this idea, Abram, why don't you marry my maidservant, Hagar, as well? Take her as your wife, too, and have a child. And so all of a sudden, everything was about to change for Hagar. She was coming into the family. She was going to have a husband. Things were going to change. And she gets pregnant. However, she realizes the baby's actually going to be taken from her. It won't be 
her baby. It'll be Abram and Sarai's baby. So here she is in this place of who she is just being stripped from her once more. So she starts despising her mistress, Sarai. And Sarai goes to Abram and says, this is your fault. She's treating me horribly. What do I do? And Abram says, do whatever you want. Treat her however you want. So she starts being mean to her, abusing her, being rude to her. And Hagar flees. She's like, I'm out of here. This isn't working. And while she's gone, God shows up. And he says, Hagar, from where have you come and where are you going to? And so she unloads on him and she tells him the whole story. And he listens and he says, Hagar, I want you to go back. I'm gonna take care of you and I'm gonna take care of your son. His name is Ishmael and I have a plan for him as well. And Hagar listens, she trusts him. Do you know why she trusts him? She gives him a name, Elroy, the God who sees me. He saw her and so she trusted him. I have a proposition for you. Would you, so far, would you agree with me the need to be seen is really important? Okay, here's my proposition. If being seen is critically important to us as humans, what if the foundation of everything that Jesus came to do starts with changing how we see? If being seen is so important, what if the thing Jesus came to do starts with changing the way we see everything? In Matthew 6, 22 to 23, Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The eye is the lamp of the body. You guys familiar with black holes? So uh, it's like where gravity has just collapsed in on itself and light can come in, but what happens to the light? It just gets swallowed up, it becomes part of the darkness, right? When your eyes are unhealthy, when you can't see the world around you clearly, when you can't see clearly, it's like walking around as a black hole. Light may come in, but it just gets swallowed up. Jesus correlates your overall health with how well you see. How you see is really, really important. We're there so far. How you see is really important. Here's kind of a second proposition I have for you. The way that you see people is gonna be one of the largest determiners of the light that's within you. I'm gonna say that again because this is, if we don't get this, we've missed the whole thing. The way that you see people is going to be one of the largest determiners of the light that's within you. Andrew, how do you know that? How do you know the way we see people is so important? Well, in Genesis, we learn that people are created in a really unique and important way. Anyone know where I'm, what I'm going for with that? How are people created? In the image of God, right? Would you agree with me that how we see God is really important? It affects everything that we believe about life and reality and goodness and what what is meaningful, if people are created in the image of God, then the way that you see people is going to be one of the most important determiners of your health and the light that is inside of you. We intrinsically know, and this, this next statement is based on the fact that every person is created in the image of God. If that's true, that every person is created in the image of God, then we intrinsically know that how we see others directly correlates to how we believe that God sees us as well. Your perspective of yourself will lower to the lowest standard of how you see people. 
how you view your least favorite person, your enemy, the one you judge. If someone is unforgivable, then that means the image of God can get to a place where it's unforgivable. If someone is unworthy of love, then that means the image of God is not necessarily worthy of love. If someone's not worth fighting for, then the image of God isn't worth fighting for. Your perspective lowers to that lowest standard, how you view your least favorite person, the one you judge, your pit person. Now, I'm, I stole this concept from a TV show. I'm not gonna go into what TV show right now, because that'll distract us. Um, but the concept of a pit person, and I like this concept, it's very helpful. It's basically the idea that if you heard, we all have this person, if you heard that they were in a pit somewhere, and you knew that you could go get them out of the pit, or you could kinda just walk away and pretend like you didn't know, you might just make the choice to walk away. That's your pit person. Now, because some of us are trained better than that, or the fear of God is in us more than that, or we're just too prim and proper for that, that might be a little bit extreme. So here's another way you can think about your pit person. It's the person who's in the, the pit of your heart. It's the person that you could just never forgive them because you just disagree with them too much. They're in that pit because they're just too annoying or because they've hurt you too badly. We all have a pit person. So here's the question. Who's in your pit? Is it President Trump? For some of you it is, I'm not trying to be funny. Some of you like the anger and bitterness in your heart toward him, he's your pit person. Maybe it's mom or dad. Maybe you never got the love or affection from them that you wanted. Maybe you felt like they never saw you. And, and they're that person in the pit of your heart. Maybe it's a sibling, someone that mom or dad favored more than you, or maybe they didn't support the family or um, give back to the family in the same way you did. Maybe it's a kid from middle school. Now this is my pit person. It's actually not a person, it's two people. They were twins. <laughs> the Fuller twins. And I still cringe <laughs> when I hear their names. Now, God's done a lot of healing in my life. They're not really in a pit in my heart anymore, but they're, they're that person. Like, I cringe when I hear their names. And they said a lot of really mean things to me when I was growing up. There was this one instance, and this is how I also know God's done healing in my life. I can't even remember which one of them said this, um, and I used to know for sure. So that's good, I've moved, I've moved on, I've, I've walked through some healing. But one of them said to me in seventh grade, I was new to the school, and they came up and they said, Andrew, the class took a vote, and we voted you're, that you're the most likely to blank. I'm not going to go there because it will distract us. It's another message. But the point is they basically said the whole class voted and you're not good enough. That's painful as a 13-year-old to hear someone say, now that's probably not true. The whole class probably did not take a vote on that. But as a 13-year-old, it was very true. And it was very, very painful and very hurtful. They were my pit person. Maybe your pit person is a coworker, someone who cuts corners at work or someone the boss just thinks is the best and it's frustrating. Maybe your pit person is the boss. Maybe the boss cuts corners and you just can't respect him or her. Maybe the boss just never sees you. Maybe it's the sinner. Maybe it's that person who just does not respect the law of God or does not love God the way that you do. Or they grew up in the right home and they should have known how could they depart. Maybe the sinner is your pit person. Maybe... The church is your pit person. The times when we don't represent God's love accurately or we don't have enough grace or we're too hypocritical. Maybe the church is the pit person. 
Maybe your spouse is your pit person. Maybe they don't treat you the way you want to be treated. Maybe you guys have grown further apart and you feel stuck and the resentment in your heart has grown and that person is your pit person. I want you to think of a specific person. Don't make it just general because we're going to come back. You've probably already thought of that person. I don't know how you couldn't by this point. But if you haven't, think of a specific person because that will become relevant as we continue talking. Everyone have someone who your pit person is? That person is the weakest link in your chain of seeing the image of God. The way you think about that person internally to yourself will directly affect what you believe that kind of lowest bar of what the image of God looks like. Here are some verses that go along with that. Mark 12, 31. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So what's the standard for how I love Jeannie? how I love myself. So if I can rationalize loving Jeannie at a really low standard, there's like a law of logic and mathematics called the transitive principle, it works backward, then that means my level of love is at that same level. With the measure you use, so will it be measured unto you, Matthew 7, verse two. How about this? If you do not forgive others, you cannot be given, you cannot be forgiven, Matthew 6, 15. That person is the weakest link in your chain of seeing the image of God. Here's a really challenging verse. I love this. 1 John 4.20. If you do not love the people that you can see, how can you love God whom you cannot see? Those people become the weakest link in your chain of seeing and what you believe about the image of God. Why then do we put people in pits? Why do we do it? Why do we cut people off? Why do we cut off love from them? Why do we stop seeing them? If we know that's true, why do we do it? When we've been hurt, we objectify the people around us to deal with our pain. If it hurts, it's easier to just make that person an object of vengeance or anger or frustration or blame so we don't have to deal with our pain. And somehow, we think that that's going to help. Does it help? No. In objectifying them, we actually become objects ourselves and disempowered and devalued. If we're all in the image of God and I objectify Tara for whatever reason, immediately the image of God becomes objectified and is no longer a valuable, beautiful, noble person that's inside of there. When we do that, we stop seeing the image of God and we destroy the heart of God in the process. So we have to learn to see people we have to learn to see them, not just view them, but to see them, to look at their faces and see what God sees when he looks at them. We have to learn to see the way that Jesus sees us, the way that Jesus saw the Samaritan woman that no other Jews would have associated with, but he went down and he shared a drink with her. The way that he saw the adulterous woman when everyone else wanted to stone her and his words to her were, I don't condemn you. Even in the midst of your sin, I don't condemn you. The way Jesus sees us, the way that Jesus saw the woman who fell at his feet with tears and perfume all over him and everyone else thought it's a waste. But to Jesus, it was beautiful the way he saw her. The way that he saw Lazarus, his friend, and wept for him when he was in pain. Or the way that he saw John, the disciple that was known as the disciple whom Jesus loves, 
or the way that he saw Judas Iscariot, that even while Judas was in the middle of betraying Jesus, he still called him friend. We have to learn to see people the way that Jesus sees people, the way he sees us, the way he sees you. Now, this is really important. Listen to me. The way that Jesus sees you is so much better than what you've imagined. So often we define ourselves and identify ourselves based on our mistakes and our failures and the the curse that came in Genesis chapter three, right? The curse that came over all mankind, that we're broken, that we're weak, that there's something wrong. But before the curse, there was a blessing. And God said, it is good. And that is the way he sees you. He sees through the curse and into you and he believes in you. He loves you. He has incredibly high value over your life. Jesus gave a root command to his disciples. He said, this is the command. Does anyone know what that command was? I heard, I heard several things. I think I heard it come through. Love one another. Love each other the way that I've loved you. So what if loving better doesn't start with just doing better? What if it doesn't start with just modifying our behavior or doing a better job or being more righteous? What if it starts with seeing better? Seeing the way that Jesus sees, seeing you, seeing him, seeing others. What if we can't even love until we first see? Might that change the way we approach pursuing God? Might that change the way we approach thinking about him? Not just trying to perform for him, but to know him and to encounter him and to see him and to see the way that he sees. So um, if you know me, you know that sometimes I can be a troublemaker a little bit. Um, I can cause controversy and trouble around me at times just because of like things I believe and I'm kind of vocal about the things that I believe. Uh, I, like to, I like to make a difference. I like to fight for things. I like to change things and sometimes that causes trouble. So I've made a few enemies and enemies is too strong of a word. That's not really true. But people who just get frustrated at me. Um, and almost every time though, there's this funny thing. When someone doesn't like me for some reason, almost every time they'll say, But, and this is going to sound like I'm bragging, but it's not because of where I'm going to take it. They say, but you know what? We still, like, we like him. He he really loves people the way that Jesus loves people. Like, he loves people. And here's what I have to say about that. That hasn't always been true about me. I encountered the love of God very personally in college. He wrecked me with his love. And before that point, when I thought about loving people, I thought that I loved people, but I loved people based on their performance, by how well they did, or how just good at life maybe they were, or how obedient to God they were, or because I didn't want to get in trouble, because I wanted to just make sure I did the right thing, because I thought that's how God thought about me when it came to love. But when I encountered his love for me, it changed everything. So now when there's those people in my life that, Maybe, maybe they think I'm a troublemaker, and as a result, they cause a lot of trouble for me. It's frustrating, and it's still irritating, but here's what the conclusion I come to every time. I bet if they saw what I saw, everything about them would change as well. I bet that person who just doesn't care a thing about the law of God, I bet if they saw him the way I saw him, their heart would be wrecked in one. What if we saw people the way that Jesus saw people? If you want to see people the way Jesus does, it starts with seeing you 
the way that he sees you. You have to let him cry with you. You have to let him laugh with you. You have to let him dream with you. You have to let him feel for you to experience the way that he believes in you. You have to let him forgive you and to experience that forgiveness. And those might sound just like, like, oh, that sounds nice to experience those things with him. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a church that believes in the power of God. I went to youth camps and mission trips and conferences. And every single one of those things I encountered in very tangible, real ways. Not just theoretical, like, oh, someone preached a nice message. I encountered Jesus crying with me. I encountered him dreaming with me. I encountered him believing in me. He wants to do that for every single one of us. And you are never too old to experience or encounter the love of God in a life-transforming way. Okay, we're starting a new series. It's a new year. We're starting a new series, and this is the opening message to that series. Um, The new series, it's called Faces, and it's about the different ways that the scriptures and Jesus encourage us and instruct us to treat one another, different behaviors and attitudes that we're supposed to have toward one another. Um, Those The reason he wants us to have these attitudes and behaviors toward one another is because they are a picture of the overflow of love in our lives. When we love someone, these are the ways that that's going to look. So the series is FACES, and that's an acronym. It stands for the way that we're supposed to forgive one another, accept one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, and submit to one another. But here's the thing. It's FACES. It's the way you see people the way you look into their face and what you see inside of them that's going to determine whether you're able to do these things or not. So you might say, ah, but Andrew, we're back to behaviors. You're talking about seeing everyone, and we're learning now about the things we're supposed to do for one another. Um, Here's what I would say toward that. Sometimes you're going to have a hard time seeing the image of God in a person. Sometimes you're going to have a hard time feeling it or feeling, you may like have seen it before. I still have a hard time seeing it sometimes, but I remember that I have seen it before and I remember that I believe that and then I live like that's true. So when you're having a hard time seeing other, others the way that God does, practice these things. Do these things. Because if you do, you just might see them in a new light as well. Does anyone like Indiana Jones? Okay, I... I think Indiana Jones is cool, but I'm not super up on my Indiana Jones trivia, so you might have to help me with what movie this is from. But there's this scene where he has to cross this cavern, and there's this indication, which one? The Holy Grail, Grail. okay. And it's like, you just, you gotta go across, right? But he can't see anything. But he knows some part of him glimpses, there's something that's gonna catch me if I go. Some part of him sees a glimpse of it. Enough so that he takes the leap of faith, lands on the bridge, and then all of a sudden he can see it, right? When you don't feel like you're seeing the image of God, if you can make a choice to treat people this way and practice these things, it means some part of you has caught a glimpse enough that you think it's worth fighting for, and that's enough to start. We have to start seeing people the way that Jesus does. So when you don't feel like you're seeing it, practice these things. They may just help you see Also, though, when you're having a hard time practicing these things, ask God to help you see. It's like a cycle. They they feed into one another. So my week is forgiveness. 
And I'm just going to briefly touch on forgiveness because I've been promoing the series and we've talked a lot already. Uh, but the great thing is everything we've talked about so far actually really has to do with forgiving one another. Because forgiving one another means refusing to see a person differently because of their actions. Regardless of what that person has done to you, you refuse to see differently who that person is and the image of God inside of them. That's forgiveness. You lift up the image of God over their life regardless of what they've done. So we said already, if you want to see others, you have to first learn to see you the way that Jesus does. If you want to forgive others, what do you think is the first step? You have to forgive you, too. You have to, with Jesus, give yourself permission to be forgiven. Some of you don't believe that God could forgive you. That's a lie from hell. There is not a thing you possibly could have done that God cannot forgive. The reason that we have a hard time believing that is because we have a wrong idea about forgiveness. Sometimes we think forgiveness is just like a magic formula that erases the slate and makes everything okay, um, but that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness blesses people to start again. It acknowledges the free person inside of them and gives them permission to begin to make it right, to begin to change, and to begin to move forward. Forgiveness is very powerful. I'm going to give you an example of that, and it's an example I like. I've used it before. Uh, Pastor Chris, you and Pastor Kelly and I were up here one time on stage when I came up with this example. It's kind of a fun moment. Um, but this is an example of the difference between revenge and forgiveness. So let's say you have a house. Raise your hand if you have ever lived in a house before. Okay. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever owned a house before. Okay. Let's say you owned a house, and uh, let's say John came and burned down your house. Uh, would you ever do that, John? Okay, but in this story, you would. So we're going to say that John would come and burn down your house. So, so you could respond like this. Oh, I'm just so angry at John that he burned down my house. We have to make this right. I'm going to go burn down his house, and then it will be right, because that'll make it right. Is that a good idea? Does that solve anything? All That's revenge. All that that does, it's a way of coping, and all it does is lead to more collateral damage and destruction. Never works. Or you could respond with forgiveness. Now, this is not forgiveness. Oh, John, it's okay. Don't worry about it, buddy. We're all good. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness says, John, you're going to come make this right. We're going to rebuild my house. Then we're going to build some walls. Right now, you don't get to come in these walls because I don't trust you. But I see the image of God in you, and I bless you to have my permission to change. And as you change, you might be able to come in these walls. These walls could come down. Forgiveness sees the image of God and blesses a person to make it right and to start over. Forgiveness is very powerful. Okay, I want you to think of your pit person again. Imagine them. Feel them. Feel the way they make you feel. Why does forgiveness matter so much? Forgiveness matters because we're dealing with free people. When we bind them to past decisions and refuse to make room for them to make it right, to move forward and to change. We objectify them, we destroy their freedom in the process, and we destroy their humanity. And we destroy ours too, 
because of everything we've talked about, about the image of God. If I refuse to let you move on and bind you to an action, I make you an object, I destroy the image of God in you, and in so doing, I destroy my own humanity and the image of God in the process. So, I encourage you to forgive people. I want you to watch a video in just a moment. Don't start it yet. Um, this is, has anyone ever been hurt by someone? Yeah, okay. Some of us have been hurt so badly that it feels like there's no way a person, like I could bless them to make it right and to change, but there's no way they could ever make it right because of what they did was so big or so painful. Here's what I would encourage you in that. I'm not gonna trivialize that or minimize that. Trust God to make it right. You just bless that person to change. You bless that person to heal. You bless them to change. Leave the making it right part in God's hands. So we're gonna watch a video that shows someone who, did some really big, not good things. Um, has anyone ever heard of the Green River murders? Okay, uh, Gary Ridgway, he was convicted of 48 murders in 2003, and it's a short video. I just want you to watch the survivors' responses, and there's one father in particular who responds differently and how his response affected Gary Ridgway. Gary Ridgway sat there stone-faced as victims' relatives damned him and mocked him. He's an animal. I wish for him to have a long, suffering, cruel death. He's gonna go to hell and that's where he belongs. But then the emotionless facade finally cracked when the father of one of his victims morning, appeared to surprise him with a dose of human kindness. Mr. Ridgway, um, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've, you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. Forgiveness is a powerful acknowledgement of the image of God in others. When you forgive a person, it literally has the power to rip cords of slavery off of their lives. There's another video my wife Allie just showed me recently, um, and it's a, a mom and a daughter who went and met with a man who killed her, the husband and father, um, relatively. Um, and it was just a chance for them to express their feelings, maybe make some peace with themselves. And so they go in, it's a cool video, you should look it up. Um, it was on Oprah, I don't know what else to tell you about how to find it, but you'd probably find it because it was posted recently. Um, and the daughter is like ready to forgive because she knows she needs to forgive to let herself free, but the mother is not ready to forgive yet. She's tried, but she's just not ready. But in talking with the man, the man is genuinely remorseful. Like he recognizes what he's done and he wishes he could take it back. She, at the end of the conversation, the mom, she's still not ready to forgive, but she says, I feel like I need to give you a hug. And she goes over and she hugs him. And it's this beautiful, profound moment of she recognized the image of God in that man and that he has the capacity to change. She saw, for a moment she saw. We have to see people the way that Jesus sees people. Have you heard of, well, many of you have, I'm sure, the parable of the unmerciful servant? 
So in the story that Jesus tells, there's a master. And the master, um, he, like, he has this servant who owes a debt to him. And so he calls the servant before him to collect the debt, and the servant can't pay. So he's going to throw the servant in prison until his family is able to pay the debt off, and then he can go out. But the servant pleads for forgiveness, and the master says, okay, you're forgiven. The debt's gone. You can go. Well, then he goes out, and he finds one of his servants who owes him a debt, and he shakes him. I don't know that he really shakes him, but I imagine it in the story. You need to pay me right now. You have to pay me, and the servant can't pay. So he has that servant thrown in prison. Why in the world would he do that? If he was just forgiven, why would he go and do that? Now, I, don't, I can't tell you like for sure this is his motive, but I do know people, and I can, I can tell you pretty much for sure this is the motive in the story. He had not forgiven himself yet. He still thought of himself as a pit person who's stuck in the pit at the whim and the mercy of the master. And if the master changed his mind at any moment and demanded that he pay him back, he'd be in big trouble again. So he needed to get that money so he'd be ready to pay off the master. He hadn't changed the way he thought about himself yet. He hadn't climbed out of the pit. He hadn't given himself permission to believe that he was the kind of person that could change. He was the kind of person who could make it right. He had to start first by letting himself climb out of the pit in order to forgive others. When I was in college, I remember this distinctly. It's one of the most profound moments in my life. I was in my room by myself, and I was reading a book by a teacher named Graham Cook. He's an awesome teacher. I really love a lot of the things that he has to say. Um, I don't remember the name of the book, but there was a point where he was talking about this principle that the way that I let God love me directly determines how I will love others. And he was talking about forgiveness and how we need to, as we see God's forgiveness over our lives, we need to forgive and release ourselves. And I had just built up guilt and shame over my life, and it was heavy. And I was reading this, and I felt the reality. Andrew, you need to forgive yourself and give yourself permission to change and move forward and move on. And I was laying on my floor, and I knew I needed to say to myself, Andrew, I forgive you. And I could not get the words out. It was like this wrestling match inside of my spirit, inside of my heart, where it was like thick wrapped around me this inability to get it out. And I had to fight through it to finally get out. Andrew, I forgive you. And immediately it broke off and tears just flooded as years of shame and guilt lifted off of me. It is a battle to choose to see the image of God in yourself and to choose to forgive yourself. But God can help you do it. He can give you eyes to see yourself. And that is the place that all of this has to begin. Once you forgive yourself, the natural overflow of that is to forgive others. Here's my encouragement about that. It is painful to forgive people, but it's actually not hard. It may seem hard at first, but if you, when you experience what I experienced, the love and grace of God over your own life, it's still painful at times to forgive other people because you have to reopen some wounds and feel pain. You may have blamed a person before and dealt with your pain by blaming. You can't do that anymore. You gotta get rid of that blame and go back into that pain and let yourself feel it's painful. But once you've released them from just blame and objectifying them, all of a sudden you see them with the eyes of Jesus and to bless them to change and to heal no longer is hard anymore. Okay, here's our conclusion. 
If we want to be powerful and free people who love like Jesus, we've got to learn to forgive. And that starts with seeing. See people the way that God does. See their faces. Look into their eyes. See the beloved, powerful, and free image of God inside of them, and then treat them that way. You'll set both of you free in the process. 1 John is an incredible book. And in 1 John chapter 3, there's this beautiful verse. And it says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. How great is the love that God has lavished on us. God's love for you is so immense and so much bigger than you could imagine. His love for the people around you, for your pit persons, his love for people who've done terrible things, his love for them is immense. And he sees the potential inside of them. What great love the Father has. So I encountered this love. I told you in college, my first experience, that was just a taste of it, happened my, the summer after my senior year in high school. And I was at camp, um, and there's a guy, his name was Jared Lasky. He's a friend of mine. And he was speaking about dreams and visions, and one of the ways that we can hear from God. Um, and visions, if anyone has ever had a vision, um, it, it can... It, takes on different forms for different people. Uh, some people experience visions almost like a movie, like, like an open vision where you're just there and you can see it happening around you. I've never experienced an, a vision like that. When God speaks to me in a vision, it's more like in my mind's eye, almost like in my imagination, but it's not something I'm controlling in my imagination. imagination. It's like God's playing a movie in my imagination. And I had never experienced a vision to this point. And he was talking about visions, and he said, okay, we're going to pray and ask God to give visions, which, you know, like, it's like, okay, now is going to be the moment. Right, sure, like, but we did. We got on our knees, we prayed, and he just blessed people to hear from God. And immediately, it was like my imagination just popped open and God started speaking to me. And I saw two things. I'm going to skip the first one and get to the second. Um, I saw this river. It was a beautiful river. And there was a man. And there were some rocks. And he walked up onto the rocks and he dove into the river. So I followed him up onto the rocks and dove into the river as well. And then I came up out of the river and I looked around and I didn't see him anywhere. And then he came up right in front of me in the river and he looked right into my eyes. And in that moment, I knew it was Jesus right away because of the way he was looking at me. And he said to me, Andrew, this is my river of love for you. It will never stop flowing. It will never run dry. And I want you to be completely immersed in it. That started the process of everything changing in my life. We're going to do something. You guys are spiritual beings. Does everyone know that you're a spiritual being? There's spiritual power inside of you. We're going to do... We're going to do a prayer exercise to kind of activate some of what we've been talking about this morning. So I want everyone to close your eyes, and I want you to see and picture that river I just talked about. I want you to see the river of God's love. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk toward that river, to step up to the edge of it, and look at this river of God's love. Now, there are some of you who have been holding yourselves back from receiving God's love. For whatever reason, you haven't been allowing yourselves. You've thought you were disqualified. You thought you weren't good enough. Whatever the reason, you have been holding yourself back from experiencing his love. For some of you, it's because you need to forgive yourself, like I was talking about. So while you're still picturing that, for those of you who that's you, what I want you to do, um, you know whether it's a variety of things or one thing, and you may not even understand 
how forgiveness works yet. You just know you need to forgive yourself. You've heard what we've talked about and you know it's true. In your own spirit, you don't have to say it out loud. I just want to give you a moment to say to yourself. So if it were me, it would be, Andrew, I forgive you. So for you to say to yourself, to choose to forgive yourself, I'm going to give you a moment for that. For some of you, it's not something that you've done. It's something that someone has done to you. And it's made you feel dirty, or it's made you feel broken, or it's made you feel disqualified, and you feel like, I just can't experience love. I just can't be in that river for whatever reason. And it's like this chain that's holding you from jumping into the river. But here's the thing. You're holding on to the chain. And if you would just let go of that chain you could jump into the river as well. So for those of you who you know it's because of something that's been done to you, I'm gonna give you a moment to choose to drop that chain. Some of you, it's not a specific thing at all. Just a general sense your whole life of of heaviness and not being good enough, of uh, just shame over your life, your whole life. There's not a particular thing of just not being adequate or good enough. It's like this burden, this heavy burden that you carry. And it just keeps you from experiencing life and love. Here's the thing. You can just set the burden down. You can just lay it down and let go of it. I'm going to give you a moment to let go of it. Set it down, the heaviness. And for those of you who did that, I want you to, to picture Jesus next to you and ask him to do something with that burden. And then let just watch what he does. Might be different for each person. Okay. So what we're gonna do, keep your eyes closed. I'm gonna give you a moment to jump in the river of God's love over your life. Um, and I'm gonna to count to three. And when I get to three, you might jump in, you might walk in, you might do three backflips and land in the river. Um, but when I get to three, I want you to make a choice to release yourself into the river of God's love in your life and to, and to, and to jump in however you do that. One, two, three. So Holy Spirit, I just ask you to make that very real right now for each person who made a choice to release themselves into the river of your love. May this river never stop flowing in their lives. May they never run dry. May they be completely immersed in you, your mercy, your goodness, your love for them. Don't stop picturing it, still picture it. Let the Holy Spirit continue to work. Okay, now I want you to look on the shore and I want you to see your pit person on the shore. And this is gonna be really hard for some of you. I want you to walk up out of the river and onto that shore and look into that person's face. If you're able to take their hand and walk toward the river, I want you to do that. If you're not able to, I want you to see Jesus next to you, look in his eyes, Take his hand 
and then take their hand and then walk toward the river. And I want you to stand at that river's edge. And then I want you to lead them into the river of God's love. Literally walk in with them and release them into the river. You can go ahead and do that. And in your spirit, so not out loud, I want you to repeat these things after me. To your pit person, I bless you to never leave the river's flow. I bless you to never run dry. I bless you to be completely immersed in Father's love. So Holy Spirit, um, just again, thank you for what you're doing. I ask you to do more in this, this week and this year. Would you just let your river run rampant over us and in our lives? We want to see your river more. We want to feel the river of your love more. We want to encounter your love more. And we want to begin to see people through your eyes and through the lens of your river. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The last exhortation. This week, I want you to do this specific thing. When you look at people and when they frustrate you, I want you to picture them in the river of God's love. See them and see the river and see them in that river Bless them in your own spirit when that's happening. Just bless them to encounter the river of God's love in their life. And to bring it back around to forgiveness, forgiveness is powerful. You can literally forgive people into the river of God's love and healing in their lives. This week, forgive people into the river of God's love. Are you guys ready for a new year? Are you ready to see differently? Okay, one last time. Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the holidays we just had. Uh, thank you for Christmas, time with family. Thank you for newness. Um, I know some stories of people where the holidays were difficult. Thank you for newness in this year, Jesus. Uh, for others where it was really fun, thank you that that's the beginning of a celebration of your love and grace in our life this year. We love you, Jesus. Amen.